Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last week. First up, why do outcomes matter for international students? Second, can the U.S. government do international education policy? And finally, are there two Chinas out there? We'll be taking a look at these three questions in just a couple of minutes, but before I get to those, I do want to give a special shout out to those watching live here on Facebook. Uh, always a pleasure to have you a part of the weekly conversations we have around the issues of the day. Uh, those that listen uh, on podcasts uh, when making us a part of your regular uh, podcasting habits this week and every week, uh, well over 1,500 uh, downloads, so very excited to be coming to those of you who've made an effort to download us and those watching on repeat either on our Facebook page or YouTube channel for SMIE Consulting. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of the conversation in whatever way you choose. So today on the Roundup, we're going to cover these three questions that are really at the core, I think, of some of the critical issues of our day in our field. Uh, the first one up is, why do outcomes matter for international students? And this is a topic that I'm, I'm dealing a lot more with these days with, with clients from the university and college level as they look to develop policies and actually marketing uh, attempts at prospective students. Uh, part, of the, part of the message I try and get across is uh, you want to treat your internet, prospective international students uh, the way you want to, your international alumni to feel after they graduate. They, you want to give them that value um, that uh, their experiences will lead to something positive. Uh, that's the picture you try and paint for students, prospective students and parents, about what life is going to be like on your campus and what it potentially will lead to. And that's the, the real picture that I think often gets, gets uh, forgotten in uh, how, we, how international students are marketed to these days. Uh, increasingly, I'm seeing interest, from, certainly overseas, there's m much more of a hyper-focus on employability and outcomes uh, for graduates. They, uh, that's how they market their programs, the, through the value of their post-study work opportunities. I don't think that's done at the same level in the United States, uh, particularly beyond the top-tier elite schools that um, are, can uh, Students can find and thrive on those uh, opportunities based on their, the value of that name degree. But the reality is international students look for opportunities and outcomes. As much as they do the experience, they want that outcome to be something of value to them for coming to your institution, receiving a degree. They want to know what that tangible benefit will be. Um, beyond just prepares you for life, uh, prepares you for careers, all of that. That's well, all well and good, but let's have some conversations about the data, about what is there and what isn't there. Oftentimes, employment data is available for first jobs from colleges, uh, for, from their graduates, um, tracking that information for, for the first four, uh, few months after they graduate, uh, if they've gotten a job or not. Uh, may, some schools might know employment data for the first year. 
uh, with follow-up surveys they do with recent graduates. But having that data that's specific to international students is a rare commodity in this business. And it's something that I think U.S. institutions need to become much more savvy and aware of in, not in, in institutional conversations that they're having about capturing that data. Uh, and, and making that a regular part of how they promote their institutions, that we have students that 30% go on to top graduate schools every year, 30% continue for, uh, uh, for further, further undergraduate or, or other studies, and another 30%, 40 50%, whatever it is, get employed right away after finishing their degrees. And having that data, where they've gone, the kinds of companies that they're working for, uh, particularly for international students, is something that you don't typically track. You will, uh, will know some of that if you have uh, in ISSS offices. There will be opportunity to capture some of that data, particularly those that are doing OPT, STEM OPT, after, their, uh, after, their, after they finish their courses. Because uh, that is the only time really for optional practical training where a specific job needs to be articulated in the paperwork uh, with STEM OPT. Uh, not just for regular OPT, there's not that job requirement that where you have to know that before you start your OPT. Certainly CVS tracks employment data now uh, where, where students are, are working. Now that would be something if it could be gathered on, on a U.S. scale and anonymized uh, without uh, without talking spe uh, specifics about students. This is a this is kind of a, a connect I'm I'm feeling uh, for for U.S. institutions institutions in terms of an opportunity to uh, uh, take a look at. Uh, first, you'll have a percentage of what for international student graduates. You'll have a percentage you'll know of how many of your graduates have filed for OPT and how many of those have successfully earned OPT. You'll know how many of those that are STEM OPT as well. So you'll have pretty good data if you take the time to analyze it. And oftentimes, and I totally get it, I've been on that side of the desk having to do the OPT applications with students and get them that pr approval. Uh, the piece before uh, on tracking employment is usually going to be an afterthought. We, you know you probably have it there, but are you doing anything with it? And this is an opportunity where I think our career services, certainly uh, if they've been involved in job fairs and that type of thing, post-exit surveys, they'll, they may be asking that way. Alumni affairs oftentimes will have general surveys like that. Some, some schools do not even try and capture international alumni data. Some do, and that's great, but are they, are they turning it around and doing anything with that on the front end? Because it is a, it's a complete journey in terms of what, uh, as an institution, you should be looking at for your international students. To know that at the pr prospective student uh, position, they have very different wants and needs, but that part of what they want and need is to know what that outcome is going to be. And if you don't have that data to show beyond just maybe some anecdotal stories of successful alumni, which hopefully everybody has, if you don't have the correct data uh, or alumni stories, you're really at a disadvantage in terms of being able to sell something to a prospective student and their parents. Because you think about it, uh, if you're even a, even a, a state institution uh, that has thousand, a thousand international students, you might uh, have a total budget of 40000 a year for an undergraduate student. 
If they've not heard of you before, if they maybe know where you are, but they don't have anything really to say, oh yeah, that, that's a great school, but you're going to expect them to pay over the course of four years $160,000 sight unseen because they just because they've heard of your city or they've heard of your uh, where you're located uh, that you've not made a case for anything other than who you what's around you not necessarily what you can do for them uh, and that's something that if you're not paying attention to the the value of your uh, how your values are communicated to domestic students and how they're communicated and what they're what are communicated to international audiences may not be the same. Uh, there may be certain core elements that are going to be applicable to both audiences, but when you think about overseas audiences that uh, parents who are going to don't have access to federal financial aid, they have to uh, in many cases show the full amount of funding for a year uh, to in order to gain their I-20s to be able to go for visas and all of that. But they're looking for where's the value, where's the return on our investment going to be? Uh, having some reliable way of gauging, okay, you're going to give my son or daughter a great experience, I'm going to be in a great city, but what's that tangible outcome going to be besides just having a degree? What does that degree get them? Are they going to be prepared for their career in that field? All of that is valuable data to have. So outcomes do matter, uh, more so perhaps than uh, for domestic students, but uh, importantly, the lack of data that universities capture on this back end is something that's really, I think, going to be um, need to be addressed in terms of where are international students getting jobs that that leave your school? Are they going back home? Are they uh, studying on uh, going for their OPT time? Are they going for a further degree? Knowing that is important, and that's the kind of data you need to share. And as ISSS officers, you might not have the bandwidth to do that right now, but that is certainly some, something that should be considered, uh, that the data you have uh, on where students are on OPT, or what percentage of, of your graduating students get uh, are applying for OPT versus going home versus going on for further degrees, know that information. You might have that institution-wide, but I doubt you have it for your international audiences. Uh, and that can cohes cohesively funnel that data back into how you're promoting your institution to future students. That is a disconnect that if it, those two connections are made, I think the, there's huge value. I'm, the two links I'm posting on the Facebook page today related to this are uh, a very recent ACE report from the last uh, last, uh, last couple of weeks uh, called Career Pathways for International Students. Anna Asaki-Smith is the author of the report and really gives an excellent overview of what uh, colleges should be focusing on uh, in terms of uh, career pathways for international students, how you're tracking that, why you should be tracking that, and it also looks at OPT data, H-1B data, uh, and shares some of the economic implications, but also what our competitors are doing. And this, for those who followed me for the last year or more, you know about my six P's for strategic international enrollment management. And that first P is perspective. And this, is, this, this author in this, in this uh, report certainly provides that global perspective. And that's important for us to know as institutions to know what our competitor nations are doing, uh, that we are going after the same students in many cases. Uh, and knowing what Canada is doing, what the UK is doing, what Australia has done uh, related to work and post-study opportunities for students to 
uh, get that experience and potentially lead to residency down the road. That matters. Uh, so this is the, the clear pathway that needs to be defined. Uh, so in the U.S., we don't do it as well as other countries do. Uh, but there's an opportunity now uh, with our second question of the day that we'll talk about in a minute uh, that that might change. But uh, for now, the outcomes are one of the things you're looking for is OPT to H1B potentially data. So a little bit further removed from the student experience. But that H1B is that it, though for those who are looking to stay, get that experience and potentially become residents in the U.S., this is the path that currently they most likely are going to take. So they'll want to know, and there's a list of the top 15 companies that sponsor H1B. Uh, that's from Intel at number 15, Apple's on that list. Uh, uh, Mahindra, Tech Mahindra is on that list, so an Indian company that has U.S. affiliates. Wepro Limited, uh, Accenture Consulting Firm, Facebook, IBM, HCL America, Capgemini, Capgemini, Google at number six, Microsoft five, Cognizant Technology Solutions, never heard of them before, uh, Tata Consultancy Services, another Indian company, uh, Infosys, uh, and number one, Amazon has uh, the most H-1Bs uh, of visas approved in this most current bunch. So that's the kind of list that international students will want to know about, uh, what the current lay of the land is, because that's an ultimate goal that they might have. And for that group, knowing that, that who those top 15 companies are, if they're in consulting in the tech fields, in the STEM fields, those companies will probably be uh, very high up on their list of where they want to apply for, for jobs and that type of thing. So, so, so will many other international students, but you understand the, the need for it. So this rolls very nicely into our second question of the day, and that is, can the U.S. government do international education policy? And we're referring, uh, again, this is follow-on from the Joint Statement of Principles in Support of International Education that was released during the Education USA Forum back at the end of July. That uh, endorsement of the importance of international education that came out of that, CIS, uh, that uh, policy release and that commitment, uh, federal agencies, and we got the four main departments, education, state, commerce, and, and DHS, that are going to combine efforts to develop this policy. There's really not a lot of meat or structure uh, on this uh, on this new initiative yet, but we're certainly it's going to be welcomed with open arms once that uh, does happen. And it may take months, may take years. But uh, there's obviously elements of this that are going to be regulatory. There's ob elements of this that are going to be um, uh, have legislation in involved in order to get to, to some of these objectives, which poses some interesting challenges in some of these areas. But those are certainly ones that we'll take a look at as, as, the, as the plans develop. But the point of this is, can the U.S. government do international education policy? Um, it's, a hard, it's a very interesting one. I've just completed a, a research uh, project for uh, a Canadian consortium of institutions that are uh, looking, trying to find out what competitors are doing. And again, that going back to that perspective, the importance of that. Uh, and the, one of the questions that they're asking is, uh, what's, uh, uh, what is the, this new, uh, how is this new uh, joint statement of principles in support of international education in the U.S.? How is that moving? Uh, what's, the, what's the end goal going to be? It's kind of understanding what might happen next with that process. Uh, who knows, really, because uh, it was just released, and again, there aren't a, lot, a whole lot of specifics yet. It's not a strategy, as uh, one of my colleagues uh, made the important distinction yet. It's kind of outlining, outlining some bold principles, uh, 10 different facets of that. 
uh, that they have identified you know, that will address international education at, on a national level that has never been really done before in a cohesive, coordinated way. Uh, so that is certainly moving in the right direction. Uh, but when you look at the, the parties involved, um, there is clearly uh, some administrative things that can be done, regulatory things that can be done without congressional uh, ne necessarily uh, approval or legislative change. Uh, but, but there are a number of things like visa policy change in terms of categorizing individual visas as dual, dual intent, uh, allowing the uh, green uh, or automatically giving green cards to those who graduate from overseas with a PhD here, uh, those kinds of things. But there's co coordination on promotion, uh, things that maybe can done but be be done without uh, congressional involvement. Uh, so there's administrative structures that can be put in place. There, there needs to be mechanisms that, uh, that filter policy ideas that uh, can be routinely circulated and voted on in some small way, I have an advisory board, all of that kind of thing should happen. Uh, that can be done independent of congressional oversight. But some things I, I will have to be, require Congress to be involved in, to address funding models for promoting the United States as a destination uh, for international students, uh, particular changes to immigration law, uh, that type of thing. Those are going to require changes. So there's a lot of, lot of uh, miles to go before we sleep on this one, but there are, can they do it? They can, but it's, it's an unwieldy beast, uh, the U.S. higher education system and promoting it uh, in, a, in a coherent way. We found this out certainly when we started doing that for Education USA and the State Department back in the late 90s. But this is something that we really think about uh, with, uh, with the need for it is certainly there. The desire from the grassroots to make it happen is certainly there. And now that seems there's the political will to make it happen uh, in D.C., you never know. But I, I, I'm being more, I'm cautiously optimistic regarding progress towards this. And can the uh, government do it? Uh, I think they can if they have their all their ducks in a row in terms of what's, uh, how involved it, it really wouldn't have to be a public-private partnership just because of the nature of uh, interna international education in this country. Um, so it's, it's possible and it does uh, commit, if there's, there's, the principles seem to commit the U.S. government to doing it, but what that actually looks like is another story yet that we, we don't have those details. But certainly I think the, can, the U.S. government can do it and should do it, uh, more importantly, uh, in order to maintain our uh, competitive advantage that we have and perhaps restore some of the advantage that we've had lost over the last few years. So thumbs up to the, the efforts and we, we certainly will be following it and supporting that as we can. And really understanding the Biden administration's understanding that this is um, an important step for the United States as a country, but also for representing pre uh, the United States as a destination to, to the world. So uh, let's, we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. Now let's get to our final question of the day. Are there two Chinas out there that we're dealing with? This is a question that can be seen on from a number of different levels. And here, I'm, what I'm not talking about is yeah, Thai, uh, mainland China, Taiwan uh, as two Chinas. Um, China, mainland China, PRC, uh, CCP certainly does not see their 
to be two Chinas. Uh, that's a part of China and Taiwan. They would call Taiwan just much like they did Hong Kong. That's always been a part of China, even though it's separated and was its own country for, for many years. Uh, the, Macau is part of that too, but uh, the islands that China has been building in the South China Sea, uh, creating artificial islands that are now airstrips and going to be part of their, their territory they're going to claim. Uh, the challenges that that presents, uh, but that's neither here nor there in terms, I'm not talking the geopolitical two Chinas, I'm talking uh, international education's two Chinas that we're dealing with. And the Chinas we, we deal with um, are the government in, in Beijing, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the PLA, the military civil fusion piece, that is certainly one China that um, certainly governments heads of state deal with from around the world. Uh, that's uh, the China that uh, we see in the news whenever, certainly we saw as the great enemy over the last uh, few years with uh, the previous administration. Uh, there's a little bit of softening of that you know, with, the, with the Biden administration, but there's also still a lot of antagonism towards China related to trade, related to politics. Uh, we do see the Biden administration carrying over the uh, visa policy related to Chinese STEM students and this military civil fusion piece, that's still in place. They, they haven't uh, they actually refused to take that off, off the books. Uh, so there is that geopolitical battle uh, that's going on uh, between China and the United States. A lot of that is carryover from the previous administration, but it's clear that the last 10 years, there's been this level of frustration growing in the Chinese government with how uh, they have been viewed uh, by the United States, how they, they feel they've been treated or not or mistreated by the United States. Uh, we've seen all the, all the closing of Confucius Institutes and the, and the blowback from that, the visa issues that um, uh, the trials that have been uh, uh, had and or started lawsuits, whatever the case may be, involving Chinese nationals or Chinese Americans and their ties, the Thousand Talents, all, all of those programs uh, designed to expand China's uh, soft power throughout the world. Uh, the threats are the uh, accusations of uh, intellectual property theft, which has occurred, and uh, increasingly threats are, are accusations are being made about that and how dangerous that is to U.S. national security. But uh, what, I, what is this is a kind of culmination of things that have been happening. Uh, and when I say two Chinas, the two Chinas we're dealing with are uh, the government and its impact on, on its, its country and the rest of the world. And the other China I'm talking about are the parents and the students that have uh, come to our campus in huge numbers since the mid-2000s mid and that have uh, become a mainstay and, uh, and in many places um, maybe an over, overly reliant uh, country uh, for U.S. institutions in terms of their international enrollments. They're, that the parents and the students that we deal with on an ongoing basis oftentimes are the bright lights and, and some of the most eager and supportive of the Western experience of coming to the U.S. and having that campus experience, learning from other cultures. But it seems to be that, that though that interest is still there and it's um, when I was asked about uh, two, two years ago, I think it was, to do a session for a group of Chinese agents uh, and uh, advisors that were 
being trained in the U.S. For, uh, to talk about uh, the U.S. higher education system. Uh, I'd done some online training courses for them. I uh, then had a chance to present to them about what some of the what I saw as some of the future uh, future of the relationship between China and the U.S. in terms of international education. And I talked at length then about what 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 I saw as some of the future because this was at, during the Trump administration after China was obviously heavily on the radar of the government as a uh, something to uh, butt up against and to uh, react to uh, that. There was, at that time, there was starting to see, be a decrease in Chinese interest and in net students coming to the United States. And um, I, I asked, I was asked, well, do you think there will continue to be Chinese students interested in coming to the United States? I go, yes, I do. I, it's, uh, it's probably had its peak. It's not going to be uh, on a continually upward trend because that's just not physically possible uh, on a, from an ongoing basis. But I did see uh, there's still to be strong interest and a strong demand for Western education, and in particular U.S. education, despite what the current administration was doing. And I think there's, you're seeing some of that coming back. We saw a number of surveys from Chinese students uh, over the years, uh, over the last two or three years, even, even the last six months, that have shown increased interest in coming to the U.S. You know, you've seen uh, reports, uh, another uh, report by a Chinese university uh, based in Hong Kong, uh, Lingan University, uh, that uh, all, for all, stu all students, whether not those that were just looking overseas, but all Chinese students, 22% would consider, post-pandemic, would consider further education abroad. And that uh, broke down. U.S. is still top of the pile for that group. Uh, U.S. by about 5%, at about 50% would consider the U.S. You could vote for more than one. 45% uh, would consider the U.K., Japan, Canada, Germany, uh, rounded out the top five. So there's still a huge demand for Western education uh, here in China, and the U.S. is still top of that list. Uh, as a, and it's always been top of the list for Chinese students uh, as a number one destination, certainly in the last 20 years. So the demand is there. This is the China, why well, I say there are two Chinas. There's the, the China of the people, and there's the China of the government. Uh, they are oftentimes very different. Where I see there being a less rosy picture for China, and coming in the next four to five years, uh, we're seeing signs of it, and certainly a lot of their new national security policies they've implemented have clamped down on, on big tech in China, profitability in China. Their recent uh, acts at the end of July, beginning of August, that are basically uh, dis, uh, dismantling uh, the, the, the tutoring industry in China, uh, particularly those tutoring uh, businesses in China that are uh, reliant on U.S. or Western uh, labor for teaching. Or for, for example, my wife teaches uh, English classes to uh, Chinese students, all of which are, that she's working with are based in China. Uh, that uh, opportunity is now no longer possible after current, current families have uh, used all their, uh, their spots, uh, the slots that they've paid for. Uh, because the government uh, in China is now, they'll still allow English instruction to go on, go on for, for families, but not, it will not be allowed f for uh, non, 
residents in China to do the education, to do the tutoring. Those uh, students, and this is one of the things I was asked two years ago, what do you see as one of the bright lights for the future of the Chinese-U.S. relationships uh, on, in international education? I said, my, I, I put up a picture of a VIP kid, and there are other services like this, but uh, that service uh, puts students age 4 to 14 in front of uh, many, mostly U.S. Uh, parents and teachers that uh, where they're developing relationships with these students from that age and that age group are learning English because parents want their sons or daughters to have a wide range of opportunities available to them when they want to go off to university. So, but the Chinese government now has said those, that's no longer possible. We will not allow that in our country. So they've taken, they're taking away the choice of these of these Chinese students and parents where who would like that Western education in terms of their English language instruction that has knock-on effects down the road uh, for where uh, for post-secondary options so very muddy waters we're getting into with that relationship uh, with China the two Chinas that we're experiencing the the parents and the students and those uh, of, and the, that the China of the government so where those two butt heads is going to be interesting in the longer term to see who wins out. But uh, given the nature of the, of the government in China, uh, unless there's a popular uprising to counteract that, are you going to see, unless there are economic consequences uh, for uh, fewer students going abroad, that's going to be something that we'll, we'll keep an eye on as well. But great topics today. Uh, really appreciate your feedback on um, online and uh, f after the event, just uh, keeping me up to date with what's going on on your campuses. I know these are some hot topics that deserve a lot of attention, and uh, we'll be talking about them, I'm sure, in the coming weeks and months. So until next week, I wish you all the very best. Have a great day.